morning, everybody. Uh, this morning, we start a uh, short series of sermons on Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Um, I hope to cover the first four chapters in uh, four weeks and then leave the rest of the letter till next year. But there's lots of important stuff in 1 Corinthians. And it's a New Testament document that gets a lot of attention, quite right too. Paul discusses in this letter a number of things that were challenging and contentious in his day and continue to be challenging and contentious in our day. Um, The importance of Christian unity, church discipline, sexuality, sexual sin, marriage, singleness, divorce and remarriage, relations between the sexes how we are to uh, relate to the pagan world around us, the use and misuse of the sacraments, the use and misuse of Christian freedom, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and the nature of Christ's resurrection. Those things that, that continue to be contentious in our, in our day. Um, the letter is also perhaps particularly practical in its outlook because it's a mixture, mixture of things that... Paul wants to talk about and things that the Corinthian church wants Paul's opinion on. Um, The letter is um, constantly focused on the practical issues of Christian life together, getting theological only in response to understanding why such and such a thing is important. Um, Something that we all need to know is that uh, Paul knows the Corinthian church intimately. He founded it. In Acts chapter 18, we read about how Paul, after leaving Athens, traveled the 80 kilometers or so to Corinth, where he met some fellow Jewish believers in Jesus, Aquila and Priscilla. They were also recent arrivals in Corinth, having fled from Rome after Claudius ordered all the Jews out of Rome. Um, Aquila was trained in the same trade as Paul. They were both tent makers or leather workers, and because of this, Paul went to stay with them. Now, the Greek city of Corinth was was a large cosmopolitan city. On that narrow neck of land, with with water on both sides, the Corinthian Gulf on one side and the Saronic Gulf on the other, and it's halfway between the cities of Athens and and, um, Tripoli. And the world of uh, that day had a a love affair with travelling by ship in much the same way that the world of our day has a love affair with air travel. Everything went by ship. Everyone went everywhere by boat. Thus Corinth was an ideal location for an economic and cultural crossroads. And it's been said um, of Corinth, uh, in ancient times it was considered um, the least Greek of Greek cities and the least Roman of Roman colonies. Because it was so cosmopolitan, so multicultural in composition with substantial African, Egyptian, Middle Eastern representation as well as Europeans. Um, now, in ancient times, um, say in the times of the Old Testament, Corinth had been a center for the worship of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love. And it seems that pagan worship in Corinth into New Testament times involved or could include uh, temple-based prostitution. Um, As an affluent city, uh, the capital city of the Roman province of Achaia, Achaia, the Corinthians considered themselves intellectually and culturally sophisticated. 
in, and in popular culture right across the Mediterranean world, the phrase Corinthian words meant something philosophically pretentious or highbrow, whilst the verb to Corinthianize meant to fornicate, to have sex outside of marriage, a form of licentiousness that was considered offensive and immoral to many Romans, as well as, of course, to the Jews. Um, it is perhaps worth noting that whilst Corinth was an unusually affluent and cosmopolitan city, it's important that we remember also that the vast majority of people living there were poor, just like every other city in the ancient world. And in this city, Paul preached every Sabbath, reasoning in the synagogue, and trying to persuade both Jews and Greeks to believe in Jesus. When Silas and Timothy joined him from Berea, Paul devoted himself to full-time preaching until the Jewish leadership took umbrage and threw him out of the synagogue. So, so Paul set up church in the home of Titius Justus, a Roman worshipper of God. And they were joined by Crispus, the synagogue leader, who also believed in the Lord, him and his entire household. Indeed, many Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. And Paul stayed there, indeed, for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. Paul wrote the letter that we're reading not long after leaving. Uh, he was in Ephesus in modern-day Turkey, about 500 kilometers away, due east across the Aegean Sea. Uh, the letter that we are reading, 1 Corinthians, was probably not actually Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church. There may have been many letters. Certainly in chapter 5, verse 9 of 1 Corinthians, Paul refers to an earlier letter of his, saying, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. But this earlier letter has been lost. Paul may have written many letters to this church, but only the documents that we know as 1 and 2 Corinthians have been preserved for us as canonical. Anyway, Paul's earlier letter provoked a letter in return, which Paul refers to in various places, writing, for example, in chapter 7, now for the matters that you wrote about. That letter was delivered to him by Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaius. In addition, Aquila and Priscilla have joined Paul in Ephesus, and also certain members of Chloe's household and Apollos and Timothy have actually gone from Paul to Corinth. So there seems to have been lots and lots of backwards and forwards communication. And from all of this communication, we can see for ourselves that the church in Corinth was in serious trouble in lots of ways. These problems occasionally provoked some very direct language from Paul which in turn seems to have led to the near disintegration of his relationship with this church that he loved so much. It was extremely painful for him. Like um, many of us, perhaps like most of us, the Corinthians did not react well to correction. The Corinthians thought of themselves as healthy, wealthy, and wise, the teachers of others. Being corrected was an affront to their dignity. So Paul has to go very, very carefully. And things don't always go according to plan. 
So let's um, start at the beginning, chapter 1, verse 1. If, if you'd like to follow along, we're on page 923 of the Pew Bible. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes. Um, Sosthenes was a prominent member of the Corinthian church, one of the first to believe, a lay leader of the Jewish synagogue, and who, for his faith, endured a public beating. He's obviously now with Paul in Ephesus. Naming him as a co-author, um, it's important. It emphasizes that this letter doesn't, it's not coming from outsiders. It's not coming from on high or from foreign leadership, but rather this is internal correspondence. Paul and Sosthenes, are, they truly belong to the church in Corinth. They're members of it. It's, it's not coming from on high. It's internal dialogue. The letter is addressed, uh, you might see, both to the Corinthian church and also actually it's addressed to us and to everyone everywhere who believes in Jesus. Those sanctified in Christ Jesus, that is to say, those who have been made holy, those who have been set apart for God's exclusive use because of their faith given them by the Father and the Son, those called to be holy. That is to say, those who are holy, but are learning how to actually live it as well. To live in a holy way. And then a blessing. Verse 3, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul then begins by thanking God for them. A really an important and powerful thing to do, especially with respect to people that we might experience as difficult. It's good to keep thanking God for them. Um, and this thanksgiving prayer is both diplomatic and encouraging, commending them for indeed being wise and knowledgeable Christians, enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and knowledge, possessing every spiritual gift. And it is indeed a good idea when you have hard things to say to put them in, like into an encouragement sandwich. Um, saying something easy to swallow before... And after anything that might be unpalatable. Because hot on the heels of this thanksgiving comes his appeal, which is really a word of correction that they are divided. They are a divided church, divided over theological issues, having different opinions, resulting in different expectations of Christian behavior, leading in turn to arguments, quarrels, people falling out with each other. And the Christian community sp splitting, the fellowship fracturing. The church has indeed already splintered into factions, each one identifying who they think they are adhering to in their theology or practice. I'm following Paul. I'm following Apollos. I'm following Cephas, that is to say Peter. I'm following Christ. Indeed, the Greek might be better translated, I'm with Paul. I'm with Apollos. I'm with Cephas, I'm with Christ, in keeping with the fundamental lack of humility that is being displayed by all of this argumentativeness. So division is a fundamental problem with the church in Corinth, or actually more accurately, division is a fundamental symptom of their problem. But this division is serious, and it's the, the symptom, the problem that Paul will return to again and again in his letters to them. So Paul exhorts them 
in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, this is a weighty command that cannot be ignored with any safety. He commands them to agree with each other so as not to be divided. Paul's exhortation is that they agree with one another, being of the same mind and of the same judgment or thought. In other words, it, it appears that Paul's answer is that they are to believe exactly the same things. It appears to be the case that the problem of division will be solved by conformity. Um, that, I think, has to be uh, carefully nuanced. Um, I think Paul's uh, deadly serious about this. And his challenge falls on us. The, the church continues to work out how to be of the same mind about everything. But at the moment, there's lots of different opinions about everything. And so we need to think about this carefully. We, we need to remember um, that Paul has written himself. He's written in other places and shown us that he does actually accept diversity of opinion within churches. In Romans chapter 14, for example, Paul accepts the existence of what he calls disputable matters and allows that in his own age, Christians might have divergent opinions on food, whether or not Christians could eat meat in an economy where nearly all meat was slaughtered in the context of religious sacrifice. And Christians in Paul's age might reasonably differ on holy days how or whether to keep the Sabbath and how to mark other days of spiritual significance. Um, uh, as time has gone on, other things have become contentious. In the last few centuries, there's been endless debate over the nature of the sacraments. One person's idea about baptism allows a baby to be sprinkled with water. Another says the baptism is only real if the candidate confesses their own faith and is fully submerged beneath the surface of the water. One person believes that the bread and wine are actually the body and blood of Jesus. Another person says that that is by no means the case except perhaps in a symbolic figurative way. Um, in our times, I think, um, and, and especially in, um, in post-Christendom Western countries, the Christian church has learnt a great deal about how to be unified in the face of so much diversity. Um, more or less, not brilliant either, but I think we're getting better. Um, for us as a community, for example, at St. Barnabas, we're able to offer each other the right hand of fellowship whilst disagreeing with each other on many points. I, I routinely point out to people that at St. Barnabas, nobody agrees with me about, about everything. I, I need to be careful not to accidentally see, say, at St. Barnabas, nobody agrees with me on anything. <laughs> but, you know, we, um, yeah, no, we might disagree about this or that or the other thing, but, but we, we, still, we, we still love each other as brother and sister Christians, and we share Holy Communion as, as a celebration of that. So the call for unity does not necessarily mean the elimination of diversity, even diversity of opinion. However, as we'll see, there is something profoundly unhealthy about this Corinthian diversity. The solution will not so much be conformity as it will be maturity. That's the solution, understanding who Jesus is and what he has done. 
For Paul gives us a theological reason as to why these divisions in the Corinthian church cannot be tolerated. And it's because divisiveness is alien to the nature of Jesus Christ. Verse 13, is Christ divided? No. And so, and so the body of Christ may be diverse, but it cannot be divided or divisive. The, the body of Christ can be diverse, but it cannot be divided or divisive. Well, we begin to understand what's wrong with the Corinthian church when we, when we understand what was important to Corinthian people in general. And actually it turns out that what was important to Corinthians was generally important to everybody in the ancient world. It's easy to understand. They were pretty, pretty, pretty obsessed with three things. Those three things were power, status, and patron-client relationships. Power. The ancient conception of power was power is the ability to control the decision-making process, to conform the will of others to your own will for the sake of your own welfare. So then, powerful men conquered kingdoms. Powerful rich men owned large estates, many children, many slaves. Power. Status. The Greco-Roman culture was hierarchical. It was an honor-shame culture. Everyone was on the ladder there somewhere with the emperor at the very, very top. No two people, really, technically, no two people could ever occupy the same rung on the ladder simultaneously. Everyone had their own position or station. And yet status controlled everything. Who you would associate with, who you would be seen with, who you would eat with, what work you would do, who would or wouldn't protect you. Rank, status, honor, position, prestige, wealth. This is how the Greco-Roman world worked. Power, status, patron-client relationships. In this world, people made their way forward. They made their mark by entering into a patron-client relationship with a powerful man. The patron offered protection, representation in court, loans of money, sponsorship, and he opened doors for you, perhaps when it come, came to business connections or perhaps when it came to marriage. Your patron opened doors, provided connections. The client received these advantages, and in return they offered their patron their loyalty and service. They voted for them when it came to elections for public position. And they advanced their patron's interest, interests in whatever way they could, whenever they could, serving with courage and valor. Now, to people with such values... The message of the cross is foolishness. It's a stupid joke. It's ridiculous. The Corinthian problem in a nutshell was that they had come to faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but they were still living by these old rules, still obsessed with position, status, one-upmanship control. And they were interpreting discipleship through the lens of the patron-client relationship. Jesus was their patron, and we are his clients. And the answer to the Corinthian problem is to understand, it's to really understand that Jesus, as emperor, 
because he is. He is the king of kings, and that's what the word emperor means, king of kings. Jesus as emperor inaugurates a rule, a kingdom, in which this is completely turned upside down. The principle of inversion, turning everything upside down. God will humble the proud, but exalt the humble. The first will be last, and the last will be first. God will cause the lofty to fall, but lift up the lowly. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. It's not as though God is anti-intellectual. It's not as though God is against universities. But God is against all wisdom, all thinking, all rules and customs that are formed in willful ignorance of him, in willful ignorance of his character, his power, and his authority. The cultures that arise when people ignore him. That's what God is against. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, a scandal. You mean the Messiah was crucified, was cursed? That's obscene. It's a scandal. And foolishness to the Gentiles. That's a joke. You're king on a cross? That's pathetic, revolting, disgusting. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Jesus, the power of God, and Jesus, the wisdom of God. By the cross, we are saved. By the cross, God is vindicated as judge. Transgression is punished. But by the cross, God is glorified, taking our punishment on himself through Jesus the Son. Jesus died on a cross in order that we might be forgiven, in order that we might be saved, in order that we might be set free from sin, death, and condemnation. The cross is God's salvation, but it is also God's wisdom and God's strength. Where does true power reside in this world? Where is real power? Real power is in forgiving enemies. Real power is in sacrificial love. Real power is in putting the welfare of others ahead of your own, even unto death. The cross is the event, but it is also the method, the culture, the benchmark, the litmus test. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Inversion. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Inversion. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Inversion, so that no one may boast before him. 
And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you. I did not come with eloquence or with human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. In other words, um, Paul did not come forcefully in the power of marketing. He did not come to sell his product, to make that sale by force of personality or force of argument so that people were convinced, perhaps even against their will, signing on the bottom line before they'd really had a chance even to think it through. And they, 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 they weren't manipulated by the, by the control of a stronger personality, by someone they couldn't argue against, even though they felt maybe he was maybe right or wrong. No, in absolute and utter contrast, Paul came in a guise that would have been easy to dismiss, in weakness, with great fear and trembling. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus Christ, in whom dwells the fullness of God, the one who shows us exactly who God is and what he's like, the one who is Lord, King, King of Kings, Emperor, and him crucified. If you don't get the cross, you don't understand Jesus at all. The cross is the exemplar of inversion, the power of inversion, the instrument of inversion. The universe was turned upside down at the cross. If you don't understand the cross, you misunderstand the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Verse 4, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Paul knows where true power resides. Paul didn't trust in marketing, in tricks of persuasion, but he simply allowed the Holy Spirit to work. And he did that by trusting that the Holy Spirit would work. And in what way did the Holy Spirit demonstrate his power? Well, in the same way that the Holy Spirit always demonstrates his power. Gently. Gentle conviction that the message was true. Gentle faith that Jesus is Savior. Gentle joy about being forgiven. Gentle repentance that brought joy rather than remorse, even if it was accompanied by gentle tears. Gentle healings, perhaps. Gentle miracles. Um, Healing miracles are actually extremely easy to miss. They're just done quietly, gently. Gentle prophecy, perhaps. Speaking prophetically, but gently into people's lives. Encouraging, comforting, strengthening. Paul worked in step with the Spirit so that they would remember. Every time they thought about or talked about their conversions, how they'd come to faith in Jesus Christ, they'd, they'd remember. they wouldn't remember Paul or the, his brilliant eloquence, but rather what they would remember was that as they listened to the message, they encountered the living Christ for themselves. Their testimonies may have mentioned Paul, but they would have been all about Jesus. 
Corinthian spirituality, as we find it at the beginning of this letter, probably had a lot to do with Jesus, but nothing about crucifixion. Corinthian spirituality is alive and well in Perth. Boy, oh boy, oh boy, it's alive and well in Perth. Each week I hear stuff which is frightening about how alive Christian, uh, Corinthian spirituality is in Perth and in most of the places where you find Christians around the world. Corinthian spirituality wants power, prestige, influence, rank, position, and wealth in the name of Jesus. Thank you very much. And after all, I mean, why not? He is emperor. He's the one who's going to get me that job. He's going to get me my spouse. He's going to save me from this crisis and that crisis and lead me in paths of righteous wealth, joy, health, success, and happiness. And in return, I'll be loyal and advance his interests as best as I can when opportunity arises. He is my patron. I am his client. Corinthian spirituality wants victory without suffering and resurrection without crucifixion. And Corinthian spirituality gives birth to churches that are divided by arguments and quarrels and splits as people boast, fight for position, throw their weight around, manipulate, control, bully and threaten others and complain in the name of Jesus. And you see this in Anglican churches just as much as in others. Corinthian spirituality can only become Christian spirituality if you add in the cross. Sacrificial love, forgiving enemies, loving those who persecute us, caring for each other, resurrection, through and only through crucifixion. The Lord be with you.